Welcome to The Beacon, your connection to nonprofit success. Now here's your Lighthouse Council host. Hi, welcome to Beacon Podcast, your connection to nonprofit success. I'm David Snow, Senior Consultant with Lighthouse Council, and your host for today's discussion on hosting a successful nonprofit virtual fundraising event. Joining us today is Rick Bird, Executive Director of the Houston Gulf Coast Chapter of the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, where he leads the chapter's efforts in community engagement, fundraising, and aware type one diabetes. Rick serves in a variety including Executive Director of the YMCA of Greater Houston's Endowment Foundation. Rick serves on the board of the Houston Chapter of the Association Fundraising Professionals, where he served as treasurer from 2017 to 2019. He is a founding member of the Wilchester Neighborhood Men's Club, a nonprofit that supports youth development, education, and neighbors in need. Rick and his wife, Susan, have two children. When he's not involved in his children's activities, he enjoys fly fishing, mountain biking, tennis, and spending time in Colorado. Rick, thanks for joining us today. We're excited to have you on this Beacon podcast. Well, it's an honor to be here, David. Good to be back with you, and I'm excited for this discussion. Great. So why don't we start by telling us about JDRF. Yeah, so JDRF, also known as the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, is the leading global nonprofit organization funding type 1 diabetes research. Our mission is to accelerate life-changing breakthroughs to cure, prevent, and treat type 1 diabetes. We're located throughout the United States and in five countries. And since our founding, which we're celebrating our 50th year, This year, we've invested over $2 billion in type 1 research to date. That's a fantastic story. Tell us about the Houston chapter and your overall fundraising activities there. Yeah, so the Houston Gulf Coast chapter extends a broad area. We go from basically the Louisiana state line down the coast, a little past Houston and, and upward. So we cover a large territory, and we're tasked with really three things, raising money in that area to fund mission work, to bring awareness to type one diabetes, its complications, the signs, and then the work that JDRF does. We also do extensive outreach work in the community where we reach out to families, maybe when they're newly diagnosed or adults and give them support. What you'll hear from a parent especially is when they receive the diagnosis that their child has type one diabetes, they feel like instantly they're alone and we try to connect them with other people in the community to assure them, one, that they're not alone and that they're gonna be okay and that we're gonna work as hard as we can to make their life better and hopefully one day have a cure for this disease. And we also do a lot of advocacy work. We partner really strongly with our federal government to try to impact where funding is placed in disease research, especially with type one diabetes. And so those are kind of the three main buckets that we, we focus on in the Greater Houston chapter we're about a four and a half to five million dollar local chapter budget pre-COVID. And we're still determining what that looks like coming out of COVID. As you know, this is having a tremendous impact on everybody. And our fundraising tactics really are your standard. We, we focus on major gifts and donor cultivation and development in the local community. We have some events, two large ones, one that we're going to talk about today. But fall, we do two walks in our community. 
In the spring, we have a very large gala, one of the largest galas in the Houston area. And then we have some other smaller events that are sprinkled throughout the year, as well as third-party events where people are actually up doing the work, raising the money, and then making the donations straight to JDRF. We also have a pretty robust plan giving program, allowing people to give through their estate planning. We don't have an endowment because we don't plan to be here in perpetuity. Our job is to put me out of work, then figure out how do we administer the cures. And so our plan giving program is really to put money directly into research. Great, Rick. So you were saying that you have two major events, walks in the fall and a gala in the spring. So this year, come March, what occurred with your gala planning? Yeah, so, you know, we turned the corner into 2020 and uh, it was status quo. Actually, things were looking good. We were actually on pace to achieve our first $2 million gala. We typically raise between 1.8 and 1.9 on a given year over the last couple of years. And had this $2 million number has been a goal of ours. And it was very positive that we might actually hit that this year. Then we started hearing news of COVID cases in the Northeast. The first JDRF chapter to be impacted was the Seattle chapter who had to postpone their spring gala, which was to take place in early spring as they started seeing a rise in cases. And then really kind of the straw in Houston that brought the camels back was the Livestock Show and Rodeo, which is, as you know, a huge event. And they canceled in early March. And when that happened, we knew probably the the future of in-person events in Houston was probably looking bleak. The other thing, just to remind everybody is, you know, we're also dealing with the population who's listed as one of the at-risk categories if they were to contract COVID with type 1 diabetes. And so we're very mindful of the health and safety of our community and constituents. And then as an organization nationwide around the middle of March, made the decision to postpone all in-person fundraising gatherings between that date and the end of June, which is our fiscal year. So it was a culmination of, you know, the local impact that we were seeing, the safety of our community, and then um, guidance working with our local and national organization and our federal government. So when that news came down, it's kind of funny, one of our longtime donors, former board members, emailed me the day the the news broke that we were not going to have an in-person gala. And she said, do you know how to do a virtual gala? And I quickly responded, no, but I'm about to learn. And it's funny how you go from being a novice to a quote-unquote expert overnight through trial and error. But so that switch from in-person to virtual, what necessitated it really was looking across the organization. If everybody stopped fundraising and just canceled events, it would have a devastating impact on our research. And that's really what drives our organization. It's, it's to find cures for type 1 diabetes. And so without research and clinical trials, we're not going to get there. And so even looking at going virtual, realizing that we probably would not realize the same type of revenue that we would in an in-person event still necessitated us to move forward and maximize as much as we could these events. We started with conversations through our local board and executive committee, our gala leadership at the time. I'm talking to our honorees, all all the players that had been working so hard for months to pull this off. But they quickly got on board to support us and kind of thick or thin. And I think that's also the, the attitude and mentality of those who are living with type 1 diabetes is it doesn't stop no matter what, even for a pandemic. And so they're not going to stop and we're not going to stop. And that was kind of our motto throughout the entire season as we prepared for this. 
And then we, you know, working closely with our local government, you know, we monitored situations on what we could do, whether we could support people gathering in homes to view a, an event, whether we had to continue to social distance and people would have to be you know, isolated in their homes watching this or their apartments. We were mindful of that as we planned this whole process as well. So that was really what kind of necessitated it. It was just what's in the best interest for the health and safety of our community, following the guidelines that are put out in front of us through our local, state, and federal, and then working closely with our, our national organization, which we work pretty close in lockstep with the CDC. So that helped drive some of our decisions as well. So take us through the steps that you did to realize the success of this event. Sure. So lots of conversations, lots of planning and adjustments. But really, one of our first things we did, because again, we've never done this. At first, we all were like, what does this even look like? What does a virtual gala look like? And our gala, like most galas, has different components in the room. There's silent auction and there's live auctions and there's raffles and there's raise the paddle parts of the, of the program that all culminate to the overall experience and success of an in-person traditional gala. So part of it was like, how do you replicate some of those activities? And so the first thing we did is we were actually put in contact with the staff who lead the auctions for the livestock show and rodeo. Um, they had just done an online $8 million auction. Now, granted, they normally do a lot more than that when they're sitting in the venues, but nonetheless, $8 million over a short period of time was tremendous. So we, we consulted with them. We also consulted with other nonprofits that were considering this, you know, just what are you, what are you thinking about? How are you going to do this? And then also with our other JDRF chapters around the country who were looking at pivoting to a virtual experience. We also quickly pulled together, along with our GATA leadership, a task force that we could then bounce ideas off of, gather information from people that are normally in the room, some of our board members who are creative and innovative thinkers that could help us bring different ideas, may have resources through their work that would be able to lend to this. And then we asked the question is, what happens in the room at GALA that we need to try to replicate in a virtual world while somebody's sitting in their living room? And so we came up with things like, it's fun. People were able to connect they're inspired, it's emotional, and there's some celebration at the end. And so how do we replicate those in this virtual event? So we, we started there and kind of looking at what is the end? We also, and, and granted, we were six weeks out from our gala when we started planning this. We went through three plan iterations, mainly because as we would go along and we'd have conversations with some of our key sponsors, our key donors and, and stakeholders, we would test ideas on them and then they would give us feedback which would then lead us to, to tweaking the plan. So our initial plan actually en encompassed a three-week campaign starting with our gala. We shortened it to two. The end result was one week ending with our gala as kind of the celebration of the week-long campaign. We had a very detailed plan that had daily tasks on it. And since we were all working remotely as a staff team, not able to you know interact in an office, we had morning phone calls for six weeks to talk about what action items needed to happen that night or that day, that week? What were some of the, maybe some issues we were having, something we needed to change, maybe something we needed to add from conversations we had. We had daily phone calls with all of our sponsors, table sponsors, our key donors. We wanted to make sure that they were aware of what we were doing and how they could support us and to ask for their continued support, hopefully at or above a level they had given in the past. I'm happy to say 95% of our sponsors stayed with us. Very few people decreased their giving, and we actually had a few of our top donors increase their giving 
50 to 100% over what they normally do. So I think it's the case that we all deal with is, you know, in times of, of trial and crisis, there are those who can and will step up and support. And our motto too was for those that cannot, we're gonna still be there for them because we hope when they can, they'll return to us. And so we had that mindset going in. Just going into some of the planning, we also utilize some of our youth ambassadors, which are children with type one diabetes between the ages of five and 17. And we had videos sprinkled out for about a two week period leading up to the gala that they were the stars of and they could share whatever message we needed them to share. So we would script them, they would video it at home, send it to us and we'd put it on our social media channels. We could e-blast it out to our constituents. And it may be things like encouraging them to register for the gala, maybe showcasing some auction items that we wanna draw some attention to asking people for what we call fun to cure, which is our paddle raise. And then we even had some cameos. We have a Houston Texans wide receiver who's living with type one diabetes and he did a cameo. But again, we just, we tried to stay in constant contact. There was even a question, are we over communicating? At the end of the day, we, we did not feel that we, we did because we needed to hit people wherever they were and felt like we did a good job of that. And then leading up to the week of the campaign, really encouraging our supporters to stay tuned to register for the event so they could follow it online, support throughout that week with a donation. And then the night of during the virtual gala, we wanted some of it to look like in the room, but it appears for for the average person that that $100,000 donation just came out of the blue, right? But we know that there was a lot of time and effort put into cultivating that and making that ask and then timing the delivery of the gift. And so there were some gifts that we wanted to know we had going in. And there were some that we said during the event, please enter your gift on your phone so that it populates into the room. So it looks like the numbers are growing. It then gives momentum and motivates others to support at that level as well. So there was a lot of orchestration in that part of the event. So tell us about how the event actually played out. So as I mentioned, the gala itself, the the virtual gala, our original theme was Midnight in Monaco. And we rethemed it when we switched to the power of us because we wanted to really draw the theme to to unity and coming together and the hashtag stronger together played out through that as well. So so that was important. So we we changed the theme and we had a great MC, one of our, our local board members, who's also the host of Texans TV in Houston. He's emceed our gala in the room before. So he knows our audience. He knows our cause. He knows the disease. He's living with type 1 diabetes. And he also understands how to host a TV show when he can't see the audience and the other aspects. And so we also had an auctioneer that we brought back who does our auction most every year. He's actually out of Seattle, and he did our live auction and, and our raise a paddle live from his place in Seattle, Washington. And those two were, were both live throughout the event. Our videos, um, other aspects were pre-recorded. So for example, prior to the start of the, the show that night, we had several of our board members and their families on Zoom and we recorded different activities. So we said, raise a glass, cheer, and do some other activities. Then throughout the gala and the virtual gala, our MC would say, hey, we've got our, some board members tuning in and our production team would actually pull up the video of them cheering. So it looked like they were participating live when actually it was pre-recorded. So, you know, our, our event was probably a blend of about 60% live, 40% pre-recorded video. The good thing about the pre-recorded is that you can control that. The problem with the live, sometimes you get technical difficulties. And for that reason, we quickly reached out to our AV team who does our in-the-room broadcast 
and production and said, we need your help. We don't know how to do a Zoom meeting, broadcasting it live on YouTube to an, a large audience. And they didn't have a lot of experience either. But again, just given their background, learn pretty quickly. So they helped us make sure that we had a good feed. There was very little interruption because as you know, the worst thing is when you're watching something on Zoom or YouTube and it's delayed or there's issues, you'll just turn it off. Getting all the foundation laid was very important. The other part was audience development. So as I mentioned earlier, a lot of work went into making sure that we knew when people were gonna make certain donations, we started the event off kind of like we would at a normal event. Some introductions, thanked our sponsors, a message from our board president, a message from our president and CEO of JDRF International. And then we moved into some short little fun videos just to kind of create some excitement. And then we went into our live auction. Normally we have nine or 10 items in the room. We narrowed that down to three, mainly for attention span. And we had no idea what to expect from these items. In the room, these three items may typically raise between thirty-five and 50000 So we thought, gosh, if we can get 10 or 15 for all three, that would be great. And we ended up getting close to 40. One is our auctioneer who could draw out the crowd and keep it going. And people were able then to bid on their phones using one cause and, and could see their bids taking place. And then the auctioneer would close the item and then the bidding would stop. You know, we close our silent auction during that as well. Between live and silent, again, we had hoped maybe we could do, you know, forty to fifty thousand dollars. We ended up doing over a hundred thousand. Um, I think part of that was just again, we did a really good job of communicating and showcasing items, and then using our youth ambassadors to promote them, and then people followed them throughout the week and and kept them going and created some excitement as well on their end. So, so that was great. We also do a raffle item. We have a very generous jeweler in town, Nicole and company. They donate a very nice piece of jewelry that again, in the ballroom would bring in $20,000, $25,000. We were hoping for five online. We actually ended up doing just under 20,000 in virtual raffle tickets. So those were all wins. And then we get to the point of the night, which is a very emotional part of the night in our ballroom when we do fun to cure. This is the raise the paddle version of the gala. And 100% of the donations during this time go straight to research. And so it's very powerful because people, they know that their money is going right to where they want it to go. And it always starts in the room with the, the lights go dim, a video is played. It usually draws out a lot of emotion. As the lights rise up, the room is then filled with 40 to 50 kids standing throughout the ballroom and there are ambassadors. And so it, it immediately takes that story and it, puts faces on, on these people. And so you can only imagine how that inspires people then to support. So our biggest fear was how can we draw that same emotion if we don't know if somebody's like walking into the kitchen, you know, or taking a restroom break from their living room. It's like, we just can't control where they are and what they're doing in their rooms. And so we put together what we thought was a very creative and, and powerful video. There was no talking. It was simply um, individuals who would hold up a sign in front of them. And it, it may say, my first name diagnosed 1992, age 10. Or it might say, my granddaughter was diagnosed. And then they would turn their sign over and it would say something like, I'm here for a cure. Or I stand with JDR. I mean, it had some kind of powerful message they each would do. And so this just played in a, in a video with some inspiring music. 
And I tell you, it really, it drew out some emotion. It was, it was very powerful and impactful. And then our auctioneer went to the fund to cure and, and we had some larger gifts that we had secured. Our largest was a hundred thousand. And so we started there. Um, we actually had $200,000 gifts. We started with those. We got some surprise $50,000 gifts. We got some surprise 25. So at every level, we got some gifts that we were not expecting. And again, I think that was because we had some gifts come in that we knew were coming in and we, we recognized them on the screen during the production. And then we also told people to give at certain times so their name would pop up as a spontaneous gift. And so I think because of that, other people then participated at levels maybe they weren't planning on, but because they saw other people giving it at other levels. And, and we also had some people who early on had said, put me down for a table at $5,000 who, when we went back to them, said, can I take my $5,000 and put it in the Fundicure? Sure. And in some cases, they actually gave on top of that as well. We also had some challenges. So we had a $50,000 match during part of that Fundicure. And so I'm proud to say, normally in our ballroom, we'll raise between eight hundred and nine hundred thousand dollars during that Fundicure portion. This year, we surpassed $940,000. So those were the, the big fundraising components of the night. And then we ended with, we announced our total which going into this, we were like, we don't know what we can raise. You know, we were, we were questioning, do you think we can raise a million dollars? Maybe we could raise a million dollars. As we started having conversations with donors, we thought, okay, I think we can hit a million dollars. The JDRF Nashville chapter had their gala two weeks before ours. They raised $1.132 million. That became our goal, 1.33. As you know me, I'm a little competitive, but in all good. And so I was happy to report you know, we got to announce that we had surpassed 1.2 million that night. We actually ended up, total was around 1.24, all said and done. And then we ended, we usually have a band that plays in the gala at the end of the program, as well as like a casino night. And so the band that normally plays put together a little compilation. So we ended our broadcast with some music from that group. So it added that kind of excitement and celebration at the end. And I'm telling you, my phone would not stop ringing for probably two hours from people one, congratulations. I had people who, you know, even said, I didn't, I didn't think you could do this or we could do this. You know, even naysayers early on who didn't think we would be successful going to this format and felt we should push it off for a few months would call. And they didn't necessarily say they're wrong, but they necessarily said they were shocked and, and amazed. So it, it turned out to be great, good feeling. You know, hopefully we don't have to do it again, but at least we, we know a little bit more about how to put on a virtual event now. Well, congratulations, Rick. I know you have a superb staff and just outstanding volunteers and a tremendous board. But at the end of the day, it's about leadership and pulling those people together. And and I, I think the chapter there is well served with you as the executive director that you've done Thanks. a tremendous job. Well, so, you, you, you said it, David. I want to just make a comment. We do have a fabulous board, passionate I mean, you've been around nonprofits long enough to understand how volunteers get involved and where their passion lies. There's nobody more passionate than a parent whose child has a disease and they want to get rid of it. And so we're blessed to have these people on, on our team. But then our staff team, what I, I didn't share, but during the middle of this, like a lot of organizations, we did have to furlough some staff. So in the middle of planning, we quickly had to shift and people had to start picking up responsibilities and tasks that they weren't doing and never missed a beat. And so I can't say enough about the people around me that, that work for JDRF. So it's tremendous success. So kind of recap the key thing. I know you said you really studied first the attributes of a gala 
to see that you could replicate those like fun celebration etc and then you really stress the communication part and then those key contributions having the right host the right uh, auctioneer having a strong av team what else would you put in that list yeah i think have a plan be flexible with that plan it, it will change and then follow it regularly i mean there has to be constant communication around it especially working remotely you can always cancel a meeting if you don't need it but schedule those meetings create a memorable experience you know the thing about the the event itself is not necessarily that we know all the fundraising doesn't happen during that event you know it's months of donor cultivation and stewardship and and development what the event does is it brings people back for the next year's event and gets them excited about the organization it's almost like a direct mailing campaign right we get new donors from that event who then we can then reach out to have conversations with to draw them closer to organization. So create a memorable experience for these individuals so that they'll come back and continue to support your organization. Next time, if I had to do it, I'd spend more time in audience development. You know, when we're in the room, somebody buys a table, they bring eight people to the event. What we've got to do a better job next time is working with our table hosts, and our board members to bring people to the virtual event through pre-Zoom happy hours. We had one board member who hosted 30 people on a pre-Zoom happy hour. I got to crash it and say, thank you for being here. All of them joined and watched the event and all of them made a donation to the campaign. So that's powerful. So we need more of that. And then the, the last thing I'll just leave you with is, is know what you know and know what you don't know. And the things that you don't know, resource to people who do. So you can focus on the things that you do well. So again, the last person they wanted running an AV production was Rick Bird. And so let me, let me have conversations with our constituents and our donors and let the experts figure out how to put a Zoom meeting on YouTube. Well, Rick, thank you for joining us today on this Beacon podcast. You've shared wonderful insight today. You can keep up with Rick and learn more about JDRF by visiting jdrf.org. Again, I'm David Snow. Thank you for listening to Beacon Podcast, your connection to nonprofit success. Thanks for listening to The Beacon, your connection to nonprofit success. Tune in every week for nonprofit topics with special guest interviews. Suggest future topics and learn more about upcoming podcasts and guests at lighthousecouncil.com.